That's part of your problem, you know. You haven't seen enough movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. We're gonna have to come up with a name for this little rabble rousing group. Is this we, your first podcast? This is my, well, no, it's not. I did one with Dante last year. Uh, oh, it's this, a yearly podcast. My, it's a yearly <laughs> podcast now. It is the second it's annual. What the heck? We're gonna call this. We'll come up with a name. Yeah, it's for been this. a while since you've it's done. Been a while. So, but let me introduce everybody. My name is uh, David Rains, and I am just a local film lover, sometime critic, all around curmudgeon, as my friend Beth Accomando likes to call me. <laughs> just Beth. Beth? <laughs> just that, among others. Beth Accomando is the, well, why don't you tell me so I don't mess it up? I am the author of the blog Cinema Junkie for KPBS. And? And? You are an award winner. I uh, Well, yes. This year I got the Broadcast Critic of the Year from the Los Angeles Press Club. It was their National Entertainment Journalism Award. So. And that is, Yay! And that is going to be very pertinent later when we get into the topic, <laughs> honestly. Let's not forget that her entertainment center is adorned with about 15 Emmys. So. <laughs> And Godzilla's. Not, not for criticism, yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> and uh, we also have with us Miguel Rodriguez, who runs the Monster Island Resort podcast. And what is that about, Miguel? When it comes back around. <laughs> Been about two and a half months since I put up an episode. Although I am editing one right now, which is just a story time episode. But essentially, it's just what it has been in the past is discussion of horror genre in history, art, literature, film, and beyond, where I try to take a more maybe... I am loath to say scholarly approach to the horror genre. Thoughtful. Thoughtful approach. Yeah. Introspective. Not or, intro. Yeah. No. No. I'm not. I'm not spective. examining myself. Just spective. Yeah. Spective. I guess there's a little bit of introspection going on, but yeah. Any ranting? Also some extrospection. If we're lucky, we'll get some ranting. <laughs> Occasionally, there's some ranting. Occasionally, right. but I don't rant very much on the podcast. I'm actually much more toned down on the podcast than I am after we walk out of a theater. Usually. <laughs> Finally, we have Dante Moran, local filmmaker extraordinaire of Inferno Productions. You want to tell us a little bit about that and what your area uh, yeah. of expertise Inferno Productions is? Productions is an independent production company. We do music videos, photography, web design, graphics, anything that's edgy. I've always been into like you know edgy styles and whatnot, and I started it because I wanted to start making movies that I want to see. Got tired of seeing a lot of the commercial stuff, so it's like you know people always say, "Hey, well, can you do better?" It's like, well, I'm about to find out. You're like San Diego's Fred Williams. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so now that's all, a compliment. I like that. And, and hey, also, like yeah, man, you, you can't deny being the hammer. Oh, I take that. <laughs> and also, he shot both Beth and I in the head once. Yes. Yeah. That's not with right. one bullet, yes. You not got it bullet. three, four you guys, times. You guys died well. <laughs> yes, we did. And uh, I have assembled this group because we are all obviously very passionate about film. And in our own right, we are film critics. And this is goes to the topic at hand this week, which is the expulsion of much-loathed film critic Armand White from the New York Film Critics Circle. And let me just start with getting everybody's individual thoughts on that. Number one... Beth, what do you think of this expulsion? Does it matter? And was it warranted? Very briefly. Well, I mean, I think with him, the issue is not so much what his opinion was, but the time and place where he chose to express it. And part of that was at their own awards ceremony, he decided to heckle winner Steve McQueen for 12 Years a Slave. And I think he's entitled to his opinion, but... I think to 
kind of disrupt their own awards program like that and to do it in this kind of ambush fashion is a little unfair. And I'm not sure that merits expulsion, but this is also not the first time he's done something like this. So I would assume that his fellow members would have warned him about his behavior. So I don't think this came as a total shock to him. But You're referring to his uh, heckling of Michael Moore last year. Yes. It was last year, correct? It was last year. Earlier. So, And by heckling, it was just simple F you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Can yeah. we curse, by the way? Just so. I was wondering that same thing. <laughs> but this is not going out over it's KPBS's over airwaves. So. so you know what? I'll bleep it if necessary. So go ahead and, right. and curse if you want. But I think we all know what F you means. So. <laughs> he said that to his face? He said, no, he, no, he shouted it from, it. The, from the crowd. From the crowd. Wow. Yeah. As he was approaching to pick up his award. Now, do you think this? Now, do you think his expulsion from the film critic circle matters? Do you think that matters, like in the long run, for him as a critic, or just as far as film film criticism goes in general? Well, for him personally, he may be able to parlay this into more publicity, uh, and he does. He's been very quiet. He has. He's been very quiet about this. Maybe he's finally embarrassed by his own behavior. I'm not sure, but he could because he does make a name for himself in part by being this contrarian, this person who tends to disagree with everyone else and disagree with the majority as to what films he likes and what films he doesn't like, being, you know, um, kind of excommunicated from this film critics group might be something that he can brag about. I'm not sure. Uh, Well, you know, there's no way to know what goes on in the mind of Armin Fight right now. I wonder how, you know, like Rex Reed handles himself in public. You know, and at, at some of these ceremonies, does he act the same way? Because uh, you don't you don't hear about this very often. But I know there are hecklers, so it's it is odd. Um, I wonder just how belligerent he's. I mean, obviously, I haven't been to any of these ceremonies with him. <laughs> they haven't invited you yet. No, I haven't been invited to New York, especially. No, I haven't been. Uh, but I'm curious to see how long it's been going on, whether or not. He has been talked about. I'm sure he's been talked to about it. But, it, it, I mean, it sounds like it's just white being white, you know. Um, but you're right. I'm Armin, that is. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, I, yes Ar- Armin White. Yes, yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Dean? What do you think, Dean? Well, uh, we had briefly talked about this. Yeah. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get to that. But if it is true, if he did do it, done. You know, two, that's enough. And I'm going to go a little bit step further. Okay. This is black on black crime. (laughs) (laughs) Is it because he was black or is it because he was gay? Uh, Steve McQueen? No, it's because Steve McQueen was black. Okay. (laughs) That's right. So there is a big faction of black people. They don't care Mm. how good the movie is, who's in it. You could have Sidney Poitier in the leading role. Mm. If it's about slavery and whatnot, they'll tell you straight up. They don't want to see that. And... Take Spike Lee's uh, reaction to Django. He hadn't even seen the film yet, but yet he was seriously criticizing it. And I can't take anybody serious, especially if you're in a, in a, a critic's position. Two, being a minority and being in such a prestigious circle, I would think that he would have enough sense to control himself, mm-hmm. to have some reserve. You know, why would you pick that moment to, you know, do something like that? I mean, how many African Americans have been nominated? over the years of the Academy. And now here you have a guy that's being nominated for director, could possibly get best picture, and you're going to act like an ass like that? My book, fuck him. 
<laughs> no, but do you feel the same way about him doing it to Michael Moore last year, though? He I think he did the same thing. I, I think that's the same, you know, situation. Um, you're a critic, and it's fine to have your opinion, but when you start becoming crass, unprofessional, unprofessional, especially in public at your own ceremony, there's no way I would I would take that. If I'm at my premiere, if some of my actors were doing that, so if I called somebody up and then somebody from the back room were to heckle that person, they'd be out of there so fast, especially if I had my investors there, if I had the media there. It just looks bad for everyone, especially everyone who you're even associated with. I'm curious as to what benefit the critic circle in New York is going to see from his expulsion. Probably people going, oh, what is this New York film critic circle? And why are they so prestigious that they would kick out this person that we don't like? And Mm -hmm. uh, that would be my guess. Yeah. But you brought up a good point earlier about Rex Reed. Mm -hmm. Would this be as noteworthy if it were Rex Reed? Well, that was my my question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it seems, well, you know, I I don't I don't know if that's a, a conversation I feel qualified to get into, but. Well, I would say being a member of a number of film critics groups and Mm -hmm. having been to film critic award ceremonies, the majority of critics tend to be fairly fawning over their nominees because the majority of the critics have picked these people as their winner and they're very pleased to have them there to accept the award and to kind of give prestige to the, the organization themselves by bringing these people in. So... I mean, for the most part, I don't think the majority of the mainstream population pays much attention to Film Critics Society Awards, except Mm -hmm. for the fact that you see them piled up on the advertisements for films around Oscar time where you don't even notice which critic group it is, but there'll be six or seven of the little laurel leafs on there (laughs) saying, well, it's already won the... You know, Dallas Film Critics, Boston Film Critics, New York Film Critics, San Diego Film Critic Award. So I don't think it really is going to have much influence on them at all. Maybe people will be more willing to appear at their ceremony if mm-hmm. they know they won't be heckled. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't think it's in the big picture. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a fairly small blip. One thing that I wonder about Armin White is how much does he how much faith does he have in his own writing? Hmm. If he's going to act like that at the ceremony, doesn't don't you feel like I've gotten this out on paper already? You know, that's an interesting point. That's kind of one that's of the, the first I wanted thing. to brought brought yeah. this up. One of the the article that I read by uh, Owen Gleiberman, and I don't know if anybody had a chance. The EW to read article, it. yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. um, was actually pretty enlightening as to why he felt that White should have been expelled, which was that he he thought that. Armand was a voice that was important to have mm-hmm. in film mm-hmm. criticism, which I think most people just sort of either ignore or discount, is that he is an actual film critic. People like to label him automatically as a contrarian. Whether that's true or not, I can't say. How many of you have actually read White's reviews? Mm-hmm. On a regular basis? No. I mean, just at yeah. all. I just read the one for... The one there, there was one review that I had read just to see what he was like, right. and and I read a couple of articles about the fact that he has consistently disagreed, whether for whatever reason, with general mainstream mm-hmm. opinion. But I think somebody did a, a a check on Rotten Tomatoes, and I think he like agrees with the mainstream about. 47 or 50% of the time, mm-hmm. which would place him dead center, kind of. Yeah, that's right. not total contrarian. Yeah. No. Yeah, well, but when he's a contrarian, is he tactful about it or is he a dick? Well, my question is, is if 
if he's a contrarian, is he doing it to be a contrarian right. or is, right. are his opinions sincere? And the only way I think to really know that is to read the specific reviews of those moments when he's being even, contrarian. Even if you read them. I mean, I don't think you can tell with critics if they're taking a contrary opinion because they just want to yeah. take a contrary opinion yeah. because they can argue whatever point they want. But sometimes I have felt with certain people that they go into a film and if everybody comes out liking it, whatever their opinion might have been originally, they kind of turn around and go like, wait a minute, no, 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 this isn't this isn't what it seems to yeah, be. Yeah, everybody everybody else's adoration colors their own feelings. Yeah. yeah. But the point about whether he's the dick or not is that <laughs> I, I think here's the thing. I think that on your blog or in your writing, yeah. you can do whatever you want. That's precisely can, what I think. Yeah. yeah. If you want to be, if you want to take a point of view or an opinion and voice it in a way that is irrational or, or obscene, yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's your forum to do that. But once you go out into this public forum of you're at an award ceremony, somebody's being honored with an award, and you're just sitting in the back heckling them or yelling mm -hmm. obscenities, I think that's wrong because that's trying to take over someone else's venue, take over someone else's event, and it's not a fair forum to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, Steve McQueen wasn't going to have an opportunity to go, oh, wait a minute, Mr. White, come up here and <laughs> let's have a debate about why you don't like my film. And I'm not sure that he is the type of person who could handle a one-on-one -on -one confrontation mm, like no. that. Heckling is a very easy thing to do, but... To, to actually, yeah, yeah, but to face someone to say like, you know what, Mr. McQueen, I'd like to sit down with you at this award ceremony or, you know, I would like to ask you a couple questions about your film and have you honestly answer them here because I think your film didn't address this or didn't do this. And that's very different from just yelling things at somebody from the back. Now, here's a question. Has this been proven, though? We talked about this. Yeah. You know, um, this is all hearsay, it seems like, you know. Well, this is what I, th I've read two articles on this so far, one by Gleiberman and another by another gentleman who I, I cannot remember. And they both said that even though White has vehemently denied it, <laughs> that this happened and that basically people are casting aspersions and, and laying blame at his feet without a shred of proof. Is two, two separate people said it was very clear that it was from his table and that it was coming from him. Well, and it would seem to be a very You have to look at history. You know, yeah, it's and it's not like, a first why would they just pull this out of the air? And, of course, there's no proof. Nobody's sitting there recording everything at that yeah. particular moment. And Lieberman wanted, made a, you know, really, they had to be recording the awards, yeah. and so you would hear... Yeah, but that, they don't record the audience. Yeah, the, the, the tables aren't yeah. mic'd. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, a critics group like that probably was not recording them. I mean, the San Diego Film Critics have awards every year. They've never recorded theirs. Yeah, hmm. yeah this, I mean, these the aren't, bigger, like, huge awards. Yeah, I mean, a big, and that's the other thing, is it probably was a fairly small small yeah. event so for somebody even if they were three tables away to say something it probably would have been and he might not have he might not have been in a literal sense heckling him but he could have very easily have leaned to the person next to him or just kind of said out loud to himself whatever it was he was accused of saying and in a small venue like that, you can it hear carries. it. It's one thing, you know, if you're at the Academy Awards and you're sitting five rows back and you say, oh, man, and that asshole wasted, doesn't yeah. deserve it, <laughs> it really doesn't make a difference because nobody's going to hear you except the people right in your near vicinity. The person up at the podium isn't going to hear it, and it's not going to end up probably broadcast 
All the quotes keep but, saying that he was that make it sound as if he was literally shouting it to McQueen mm-hmm. with the intention of McQueen hearing him, which may not have been the case. He may have just been may have just been loud. Oh, we'll never know either way. Yeah. And McQueen yeah. claimed he didn't hear anything. Yeah, right. In the the article, and, and if he did, he's taking the high road, yeah. which is, I think is the yeah. best yeah. thing to do. Yeah. I, it is. I don't even want to talk about this, guys. Let's let's talk about my family. yeah on yeah. McQueen's <laughs> part. <laughs> that is, but, yeah. And you know what? That that is a great point to make too, as far as McQueen's uh, response, whether or not he heard it, is mm-hmm. you know. Let's just be professional and I'll act a certain way. Whereas the the biggest problem <clears throat> that White, Armand White has done for himself is <clears throat> when you act that way, you destroy the credibility of your writing. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. it, because your writing can make any point it wants, and you have the ability to craft that a certain way, and you can come off however you'd like on in the paper or on the blog or wherever. But once you act like a belligerent two year old throwing a temper tantrum. <laughs> in a formal setting where you're supposed to look professional, then it 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 throws a, a much more, you know, unprofessional light on everything that you do. Yeah, especially when uh, in this day and age, you can go out and possibly murder somebody and get, <laughs> and get sympathy. But if you were to go on stage and say a lot of racist jokes or misogynistic jokes or something like that, or you just get secretly caught taping, you know, taped saying something awful, that can destroy you, even though you've been on top for 20 years. Mel Gibson? (laughs) Mel Gibson, Michael uh, Richardson. um, One of the things that Gleiberman said in his article, and and I keep going to Gleiberman because it's the one that I remember the most, is he said that he felt like White had become high on hate, which I thought was a Mm. really interesting way of putting it. And I actually sort of related to that. I bet you did. I I did. And why is that, Miguel? (laughs) Why? Because you hate everything. I do. Which is not true, but but it does seem that way. It does seem. The point you make is, even though I don't hate hate everything, I come across as that. Well, here's the thing. With both Armand White and you, David Oh, God. I've I've officially been commingled with Armand (laughs) White. David White. (laughs) David White. (laughs) And you actually are white. But But my soul is black. We should just call you David Black. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) um, in, in his case and yours, I think you're both at your... As far as uh, crafting an entertaining piece, one that's fun to read, you're both at your um, literary best when you hate something. That's depressing. I mean, it's true. <laughs> and for a lot of critics, that is actually how it is. My, I mean, even the critic like Roger Ebert, you know, his most entertaining uh, criticisms to read were when we, he really hated something and they tended to be hilarious. And when he loved something, it was like, ah, I don't care. But I think <laughs> let me. Well, okay. Well, finish that thought. Sorry. But but what I really think is it. Um, in both your cases, your hate screams more loudly mm-hmm. than your love. True. And uh, the only time I remember personally when you love something is when it 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 is surprising. Yeah, because <laughs> it usually sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah. he's so contrary. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the that's kind of the point. Is and you do come off as contrary sometimes, yes. even though I do know that you are sincere. Like that yes. is something I've always known about you. But he makes points. You I mean, do, that's yeah, the one yeah. thing I always you, said. You make if you don't like something. Points. He's this consistently is why I like contrary. This. It would be so unfair think... for me to to criticize Armand White as insincere when I am not familiar enough with his work to, yeah. to make that judgment. But I, I think what this gets to is the. In, in the age of the internet, and Beth, you had mentioned this mm-hmm. earlier, is now when anybody can throw up a blog and christen themselves a, a critic, which is 
quite frankly, what I did. Which is what all of us have done except for Beth, the only professional. The only professional one. Now we are destroying her career. Exactly. (laughs) Because she let us in the room. Is now we have this, um, and and I suppose it's always been this way. I'm sure there was a reaction to Pauline Kael in her time. But now we have this movement of criticism against critics. Not even criticism against their criticism, but against them personally. And I think White makes a really good point when he talks about ad hominem attacks to his character. How many times have you seen anybody say, well, you like such and such a movie, ergo, your credibility is completely gone. Meaning... Uh, like really, my entire credibility is ruined, is undermined based on a single film, whether or not you agreed with me on anything else, and I think that's what bothers me about. Well, but I think a critic has some choices when they have a review that is either that it's contrary or is that is uh, negative, and they get feedback from their readers or listeners. And your choices are either descending to the level of some of your critics and taking the road of, well, you're an idiot too, or you don't get it. Or you take the approach of saying, look, here are the points I made. You didn't read the review because if you're saying this, you didn't notice that I was talking about something very specific. Or you obviously didn't read the whole review because then you would... Because I had to deal with comments on my blog frequently. Um, the, the format we had for my blog uh, a few years ago was much more interactive in the sense that every time someone posted a comment, you would get an uh, email notification. And everybody in the comment thread would get an email notification. So it got very interactive in terms of pros and cons. And, I mean, when I have disliked certain films, like... Sucker Punch, like <laughs> Ocean's 13, oh. <laughs> like Cloverfield. I I literally got death threats. I got people saying you should be taken out and shot. You should, you know, if Getting I if I walked, that's if I if, if I ever met you face to face, I would punch you. You know, I mean things like that from People and it was just an opinion. How much of you? How much of that do you think is serious? Because I will go on record well, as saying that as a joke. I I think you all know I would never actually do this, but I've said on more than one occasion. You know, if J.J. Abrams was sitting next to me in Star Trek, I would have punched him in the face. Which of course I wouldn't. But that's sort of that passionate but reaction. But you also only said that this is a published comment. I mean, I think I've, I've part actually of, written that down before. I mean, <laughs> I think part of the reason people say that is because they believe in anonymity on the web. Yeah. So they feel exactly like they right. can say. And I have to say that a number of times I've gotten really negative comments on a blog. And if I have directed a comment back at the person, that frequently once you start a dialogue – it becomes very different. You know, mm-hmm. the guy who said, like, you know, oh, one guy said, if I had a friend named Beth, I would punch her in the face because I'm so mad at you. And I wrote back and said, well, I'm glad I'm not one of your friends. And he says, well, you know, honestly, um, she ducked and she was really fast and that was a stupid thing to do. So it and there was a person who who wrote um, on a, a review I had written, which uh, it was a film that dealt with abortion. Uh, and he was very adamantly anti-abortion and came to some snap judgments about my opinion and about the film without seeing the film. And I ended up exchanging like 20 posts back and forth. And by the end, you know, we had a real conversation of ideas and exchange that was really interesting. So I think that part of that on the internet is this, like, I can say whatever I want. Nobody knows who I am and it doesn't make any difference. But, I mean, there have been times, too, when there's just, you know, some Looney Tune people. I had the Women's White Supremacist Group of Santee 
It's way too specific. Uh, tell of me to <laughs> because I didn't like Doris Day and Debbie Reynolds that um, they were after me. So well, so going back to this idea of being high on hate, then yeah. <laughs> does it go back to people who make comments on these? Like, do you guys think that people are people who comment? negatively are equally high on hate like they want a reason to hate something oh yeah are you yeah. kidding me i don't read comments anymore on no. almost yeah. virtually nothing because it does end up becoming it, it is high on hate there's no reasonable there there's no there's even no discussion sincere, of no ideas discussion. yeah no. that's the main thing that exactly. bothers me. complaining is the new drug yeah, yeah. yeah. why do you think yeah. that is i because people are just dicks <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, it, that that's that is one way to put it, but I think in, in some way that's true. There is something kind of cathartic about saying something extraordinarily negative and not really having your face attached to it. Hmm. And, and you just see how how the the snowball just, you know, gains well, momentum. People just like to people just jump are on the looking to find things to get upset about. I mean, yeah. just look on your on Facebook sometimes. <laughs> you know, people I have total strangers posting comments going you have a, talking about Dante's film. I had a picture of myself where I had done the makeup for the bullet in my head, and somebody told me, goes, that's really not a professional thing to have up on your page. Um, you know, there was a recent shooting, and I think you should be more sensitive. It's my personal Facebook page. Mm-hmm. I was proud of the makeup I had done, yeah. and then I took a bullet in the head. I mean, they, they removed the, the Twin Towers from Spider-Man 3 as if yeah. they never existed. It's right. just like... What is this, man? Do you think that negative criticism insofar as deconstructing filmmaking is more, for want of a better phrase, this is going to be a terrible combination of phrases, but is more (laughs) constructive than positive critique? Well, I think it all depends how it's done. Mm -hmm. I think there are a couple of problems going on with film criticism these days. (laughs) <laughs> I know. It's, it, we, I know what, what is the, de- the Democrat? I'll try to outline some of the things that are going on that are a problem. Uh, because anyone can be a critic. I mean, basically, anyone can, anybody who sees movies and has an opinion about them can put up a blog and write about that. And what this means is there's a lot of opinions out there. There are a lot of blogs. There's hundreds, thousands of reviews out there for every movie. And what happens, one of the things that's happening is that legitimate publications, big publications, no longer want to pay for a film critic Mm -hmm. because they feel like there's so much of it out there, there's no need. Or there's a reduction of the number of these professional critics because a newspaper will say, like, we don't need to pay for a critic here in San Diego. We'll take a national critic who's being syndicated. And so this one person's opinion you know, ends up being all over the country instead of individual, you know, cities and towns having their own critic. So you're losing a, a, a class of people who make it their profession to dedicate themselves to writing about film and writing within a certain format and style, which tends to be less about, uh, you know, just calling filmmakers names or saying, oh, this filmmaker's an idiot, don't they understand it? And, you know, people who used to write for, like, Sight and Sound and Cahiers de Cinema and places where you really wrote about a film and thought about it. And it was criticism that not was not necessarily meant to be read before you saw the film, right. mm-hmm. but yeah, after that's, that's you point. saw the yes. film. Because nowadays what criticism seems to be about is thumbs up, thumbs down, four stars, whatever. So 
some people I don't even think people read a lot of reviews. No, they look at it. Oh, that's four stars. Let's go that's see the film. I've it's, read I've read reviews where they actually gave away the conclusion yeah. of the film. Yeah. In the review, and I'm like, wait a minute. And the movie hadn't even come out yet. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, there are different categories of criticism, too. There are some people who simply rehash the plot, and that's it. <sighs> there, nice. <laughs> You know, there are people who write about it for very specific reasons, for magazines where it's for parents who want to know whether or not the film is, you know, acceptable for their kids. And, you know, there's like I said, there's critics who just write about a film to give you a sense of, is it good or bad? And then there are critics who write about it in a sense of, I'd like to enlighten you, and I think that you should see the film and then read my review. I just read a review in uh, Badass Digest mm-hmm. about Inside Lewin Davis, yeah, we're talking about this. which I read that and I was going, oh my God. Th- I was struggling with this film because I thought it was exceptionally well-crafted but completely hollow, and I couldn't figure out what the Coens were trying to do with this movie. And this guy took the approach that it was all about the authentic and the inauthentic, right. And I want to go back and see that movie now and watch it again and see with that in mind and with a number of the points he made. And then as I was reading it, I was thinking like, oh, yeah, there's this, this and this that fits into that. And I thought that was an exceptionally well-written piece. I think what you're getting to is that this particular review was written to provide true insight into the meaning of the film Mm -hmm. as opposed to should you see it, should you not see it, is it a good film, is it a bad film – it was clear from the writing that he thought it was a good film and worth viewing, but it wasn't. He wasn't cheerleading for the yeah. film, mm-hmm. and I think with the advent of things like Rotten Tomatoes, that and I'm just as guilty of going to Rotten Tomatoes, but I had to stop doing that because I disagree with Rotten Tomatoes as often as I agree with it. <laughs> is that well? I know, shocking. Um, well, is, is that well? It, it's that it's become a sort of critics' popularity contest, mm-hmm. and that's where it well, comes back to that. Armand White. It's people go there and say, "Oh, what did Armand think?" They don't even read the review. It's like, "Did he like it?" Oh, he didn't like the Avengers. Yeah. Of course, he didn't like the Avengers. Yeah. Well, people can go to Rotten Tomatoes, and I'm sure a number of people do. And it has the top critics, mm-hmm. and it has, you know, a couple of lines from the review, and that's as far as people read, you know. Mm-hmm. It, and it is looking for just a thumbs up, thumbs down. It's kind of like the film critic version of BuzzFeed or yeah. Upworthy <laughs> or any of these ridiculous, nonsensical, stupid listicles that are destroying the internet, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, with You know, it's all just a bunch of uh, fluff and no thought. I feel like there's no thought anymore. And, you know, Beth's point just now is kind of what I said earlier about how we destroyed her career. <laughs> but uh, but in, in a way, it's kind of true. And um, the only thing that, you know, keeps me in positive is the fact that there are some people writing out there, even though you have to search for them, who uh, who do write really thoughtfully about film. And, uh, and I think you're one of them. Uh, I happen to be in a group called the Mysterious Order of the Skeleton Suit, which is all people, and now it's all they all write about old, older cult film. I'd read it just for the name. You should. <laughs> well, it's 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 a collection of bloggers. So mm-hmm. some write about Bollywood, some write about old sci-fi, some write about '60s spy novels. You know, but th- th- what sets them apart, and the reason I was really happy to be asked to join them, is every single one of them take the approach that uh, what you described was it bleeding cool. They, uh, Badass Digest. Badass Digest, sorry. Badass Digest took uh, where th- you really try to piece it apart much more carefully and, and take glean some real insight. And what's really interesting about the Mysterious Order of the Skeleton Suit is the things that they're trying to glean this insight from 
are things that are generally considered completely worthless or trash or exploitative and stuff. So I, I actually find that really, really fascinating. That reminds me of your podcast on Curse of Chucky. Yes. Which goes beyond just cheerleading. It's very, and I find that this is becoming a rarity, especially in sort of fan-based criticism, mm. is people looking at, is it a good film? Not, oh, wow, this was really cool. It's like, no, this is cool. doesn't tell me anything. What about it made right, it cool? Exactly. Why is it, why is, why is, you know, Curse of Chucky better than, say, Seed of Chucky? <laughs> and I, I haven't seen them, so I can't right. say, but listening to your commentary, I was like, I want to see this now, it's based on how you've, Again, deconstructed the film, mm-hmm. not just said, "Oh, there was this cool, you know, there, there was a cool kill in it," yeah, which, which uh, is which is boring as all get out. Right? It's like, okay, where is that sort of film criticism gone? Well, and it's also placing a film in a context because I remember I, I ran an anime club at my son's high school <clears throat> and junior high, and you know, sometimes kids would watch something and they would say something like, "Oh, that's Marilyn Monroe. She's taking that stuff from Madonna." And it's this, it's this whole sense of, you know, what came first and, and mm-hmm. it's putting it in a context to say, okay, you may think this is new. And this is what I get from uh, some filmmakers these days, not from Dante, but from some filmmakers that I talk to where, you know, they say things like, well, I don't want to watch movies oh, God, yeah. because uh. I, I don't want to be tainted by what's been done before. I want to do something fresh and original. Yeah. Oh. But the thing is, is if you don't see <laughs> you those... <laughs> but if you don't see those films, you don't know if what you're doing is fresh and original. You can only create this delusion that what you're doing. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, th- but, but that's part of what's going on. And is the dilution of film criticism... This just occurred to me while we were talking. Do you think that any of that has any bearing on how films are now made? Because yeah, it, it, we were just talking about this because we just got back from a film this evening and I won't say what it was. <laughs> I'm not going to say what it was. But we, it, it, to me, it seemed like it was literally a, a, a paint-by-numbers... Uh-huh. And, and that, that itself is a cliche thing to say. But you could look at it and go, there's literally not an original frame on this film. And it's going to make bank in its opening weekend because everybody's going to think, oh, it's just like this movie. It's like, yeah, it is just like that movie. And that's the problem. I, I don't mind films not you know, being original, just like we were saying. I mean, you know, cinema's been around for over 100 years. Storytelling's been, you know, thousands of years. And like we were talking about caveman drawings and whatnot. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much impossible to come up with an original idea, especially when, you know, things are being done in different languages. And you have filmmakers who don't want to know the history of film. Where was I going with this? (laughs) (laughs) I don't mind not having original ideas. I hate lazy execution. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'll go with that. It's just like, all right, we're going to do this. And then the girlfriend's going to get kidnapped. And then the good guy's going to get the girlfriend back. And he's going to kill the bad guy. And then the world's going to be saved. It's going to be great. A great example of that is the raid. You know, it's not really original. People are in a building trapped fighting their way out. Okay. But the execution was stunning and superb. So mm-hmm. that, there was you can literally say it's, the, you can say it's the same plot as Die Hard, but yeah. it's so incredibly different. Amped yeah. up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, but it's but it's more than just I'm, amped up. Yeah. It's 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 also an, an incredibly it's different film and, Yeah, it really is. It, <laughs> it was well done. I mean, there yeah. were a lot of uh he set up scenes of tension very well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just like, all right, now we're going to go. Boom. And at the end, like you were saying, you were exhausted at the but, end of yeah, the film. Was, and that's when you know you have a good product. Whereas when you're we're watching, you're like, you know, you the can film mention the, Jack Ryan. Yeah, you can know, mention just, it's Jack Ryan. Right, you know, and, you know, you're sitting there going along with it and stuff. Then they start throwing in just 
dumb stuff. It yeah. was just like, what? Well, it's Come like on, I, my man. first reaction after the film was over was the filmmakers. There, there's literally no attempt. That was my reaction. Mm-hmm. They're they're not even trying to to make a film. They're just trying to to cr- to craft a product. Not even craft a product. Literally, just rubber stamp a product. Mm-hmm. And, well, let's go back to the and question this, you asked yes. before Beth <clears throat> talked about uh, the 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 kind of disappearing of real criticism. And your original question was, do you think that negative criticism is more better than positive criticism or more or more effective maybe? Yeah, something um, along those lines. Yeah, something like that. I don't I don't think it is necessarily. I think people can learn po- possibly from negative criticism if it's worded in a constructive way better. But here is where I think that there's a major problem with the democratization of criticism is we've gone to, and I'm not going to name names, but I think that (laughs) we'll all have some websites in mind when I say this. Uh, They've gone from being real criticism, even the ones that have a lot of readers, Mm -hmm. to becoming the cheerleaders for certain films. So we're going to get our free press passes. We're going to get invited to the set. We're going to get interviews. They've been seduced by Hollywood. They've been seduced by Hollywood. That is a great way to put it. And so all we get from them is lavish praise on banal garbage, and uh, and it's it's really disheartening because you end up with a lot of you know to have another cliche on this podcast a lot of emperors running around naked. Yeah. So and I have no problems with that if they wouldn't trash the independents like they do. Because the independents aren't inviting them for the set on Prague. I know, I'm just like, (laughs) are they trashing the independents or are they simply ignoring the independents? It's a little bit of both. Yeah, a little bit of both. And I'm not not saying saying that one is more correct than the other, but when you're talking about cheerleading, I can't imagine a cheerleading website even bothering with an independent film in the first place. But at least, you know, that's when the addiction to hate comes in. But I don't Mm. mind that as long as there's honesty in it. If you're going to Bleeding Cool or Mm -hmm. if you're going to Arrow in the Head, you know what you're in for. True. You're on a you're on a horror website. You know what your audience is, and you know what you can expect. So at least there's honesty there. And of course, me, I'm I'm a big believer in honesty in filmmaking. I am too. I'm a, I, uh, my big, and I will painful. put it out there. My big thing is is I've always get into arguments with people, and I don't want to get no, into no, arguments that's because true. everybody disagrees with but me. But even on websites like that, where you know that they're going to love something for a genre because they're fanboys oh. or whatever of that, in some of them, there's still dishonesty. There's still and. And it's because of the same thing that we just talked about, the whole seduction. Maybe it's not Hollywood per se, but maybe it's uh, legendary pictures or even some of the smaller – if you're going to invite us to – or some of the – like the Philippines for a shoot and to cover the set or whatever, it still becomes this thing where you're tooting the horn of, of mediocrity. Because for not the right reasons. Well, and I think the audience has to take some shoulder part of the blame as well. You know, there are critics who can tell you go see this film or don't go see this film. Uh, Ultimately, the ticket buyer gets to decide what film they want to go see. And if they keep supporting the films that Hollywood makes that aren't good, Hollywood's going to keep making them. And I think part of the problem on the filmmaking side is that Filmmaking has always been a mix of business and art. And I think right now the scale is tipping towards business. And oh, yeah. <clears throat> studios are interested in making Capsizing. a handful, <laughs> yeah, a handful of films that are extraordinarily expensive that they put all their eggs in one or two one, baskets. Yeah. 
So that film has to be very safe in their mind. And it has to be no risk-taking, even though it might be badly done, but it has to be a sequel, it has to be part of a franchise, it has to be a remake, something that's a quantifiable quantity that they can say if it fails, well, who would have known that a diehard film wouldn't do well at the box office? All the other ones did. You can't blame me for that. But if you take something that's a brand new, fresh idea and you put $200 million behind it and it fails, everybody can go, that was really stupid. And you have nothing, whoever greenlit it would have nothing to fall back on to say, well, but wait a minute. Well, it's it's the audience's fault. I'm sorry. I've definitely come to that conclusion. <laughs> I can't even blame Hollywood anymore. It's always the audience's fault. It's always been the audience's fault. I mean, when you think about it, sad. you can't Supply ever blame anybody but the audience. Yeah. so sad. Yeah. Because, I mean, when you see, and this goes back to people complaining. You know, you hear people complaining all the time. Oh, there are no good movies in Hollywood. All they do is put out garbage and remakes and sequels. Hey, you're going to go see Avengers 2. Dude, I can't wait for that movie to come out. (laughs) That's exactly what's going to happen. But if you were to say Inside Lewin Davis or uh, a lot of other movies that have come out, you know, that have beauty. Yeah, that haven't had, you know, know, a $100 million uh, marketing (laughs) budget and whatnot. People won't even bother seeing that. I mean, I've given people who have constantly complained about no good movies. I go, dude, I'm going to give you these movies. I want you to watch. I'll tell you, that's what we've dedicated our lives yeah. to. I know. <laughs> I know. And all you do is, like, dude, you see that movie? Nah, man, dude. We went and saw Die Hard 5 for like the fifth time. It's like, sweet Jesus, dude. I'm done. So I want to bring up two more things. A mutual friend of ours, Jason, pointed me to an article that said that a screenwriter was having trouble because there are only two ways you can get greenlit in Hollywood today. Mm. And that is, number one, is if it's an end of the world scenario. And by greenlit, I mean obviously the blockbusters. And we saw that in the Jack Ryan movie tonight. Mm. It couldn't be the old school Jack Ryan where it was just about drug running or it was just about stealing a submarine. It has to be apocalyptic. It has to be apocalyptic. And second, the hero has to be the absolute focus of the story. World Um, War Z. Yeah, exactly. And that Mm -hmm. was literally what they pointed out. His family has to be in danger. So he, he can save the world at the same time, but it always has to be personal. And we saw that in the Jack Ryan movie tonight, which is why I'm why mm-hmm. I'm bringing that up because it is such a perfect example of this step by step, step by step recipe. make your movie. Mm-hmm. Have you have you seen that a lot? Do you think? Do you oh come see, on, yeah. yeah, that's all you see. <laughs> that's all you see. Even in the respected ones, I think you all all of you saw and liked Pacific Rim. But it's the same scenario. Well, Miguel, Except I don't Miguel know. Except Miguel did yeah, I won't see that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even in the comedies, you had the world's end, and yeah. this is the end. And even within that that uh, comedy format, it was still about the end of the yeah. world. It was uh, the Neighborhood Watch and... Uh, Attack well, the, the Block. Watch and oh. Attack the Block, yeah. Attack the block. So, yeah, they are. Attack the Block was very good. That was very good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, which it, goes it, to no, show that it doesn't can, matter. It doesn't have... Yeah. It is how you put it together, how yeah. clever you are, how smart it is. Yes, and that movie did. made no money. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, know. That's unfortunate. That's, that's Another tragedy. Yeah. But John Just Carpenter... like Dread. John Carpenter proved that you can make a remake, have it be... And have it be completely original. Yes. yes. And have it, mm-hmm. in many ways, be... Better than the original. Mm-hmm. And uh, Cronenberg, too, with The Fly. Absolutely. Now, granted, those were back in the 80s, and we're a long way away from the 80s now. Well, we we had a, an excellent remake last year, which is We Are What We Are, an American mm-hmm. remake of the Mexican horror film. And Carrie is the, the remake that got released yeah. nationwide in thousands of theaters. This film was a genuinely good remake, and it didn't get any release. And I know, do, I know we're not all going to agree on this. Right. I think right. that the Maniac remake is Maniac is remake was too. excellent, too. I, I didn't see the original, that. so I yeah. can't comment. 
Yeah. Oh, I like the original. I like the original too, but I will admit the remake is superior in a lot of ways. <laughs> but anyway, I'm just saying, like, there are examples of, you know, something where you could take what a lot of people complain about as being unoriginal and use your integrity as an artist to make it original or make it something that is worth the mm-hmm. cost of a ticket. Well, I think uh, one of the biggest problems now, like when you were talking about in the 80s, I think uh, the budget on the thing was like $12 million. Oh, and yeah. And they, they worked on that. I think Rob Bottin worked on special effects like for well over a year. Yeah. He slept at the studio. <laughs> mm-hmm. The guy had like a nervous breakdown because he was going so crazy. I mean, he's very attached to his art. And then you got But it shows, them. man. And yeah. it does. Yeah. yeah. I know, but they won't do that now. It's no. just like, okay, uh, we're going to do the simple uh, shot to the head. Blood and brains are going to splatter all over the wall. Okay, let's do that CG. Yeah. No. No, let's do it prosthetic so it looks great. I think a really devastatingly sad example of that being said, you know, bald to your face, is George Romero when he made Survival of the Dead, which if any of us here saw that, mm-hmm. it's really bad. Mm-hmm. And and it's unfortunate because CG. he's given us Day of the Dead and Dawn of the Dead and Night of the Living Dead, and all of those have a lot Even of Even Land of the Dead. Even yeah. Land mm-hmm. of the Dead I did like, yeah. They all have artistic merit. And then, and I remember he was asked, you know, why, for example, there was a really painfully horrible scene where there are a bunch of zombie heads on pikes Mm. and they shoot the heads Mm -hmm. and the CGI showing their faces are alive and it looks atrociously bad. And, you know, someone asked him, you know, why did you go that route? Why did you use CG? And he, he basically said, you know... Uh, the people who are funding the film and the, the people who backed the film just want me to get these effects shots mm-hmm. over with yeah, and just get it done really quickly. They don't give you the kind of time that you used to have. There's just no way to do it anymore. Yeah. Well, we could definitely have an entire yeah. special yeah. effects podcast. Yeah, how did we even get off on this rant? Hey, but, it's easy to get off on a tangent when you're talking with film. But I think, I think it dovetails <laughs> a little bit because you start to see parallels between the lack of integrity in filmmaking that way and the lack of criticism these days. Well, and this points to another blog post that I saw recently that said people don't look forward to films anymore. They feel obligated to go. It's that opening weekend obligation, which I think filmmakers are now, are now counting on because they don't even see past opening weekend anymore. No. If it goes on to another weekend, that's just a bonus, but they don't really care. And you're seeing, you know, I, and, I'm, and I'm feeling the trend myself. And, and this past year, I stopped. I was like, I don't want to see that film. Yeah. I know it's a big blockbuster, but I just don't care. I have to admit, I've I've been that way this past year as well. Well, because that feeling of obligation is gone. And I remember mm-hmm. even, you know, 20 years ago, I would sort of feel that obligation like it's a blockbuster. Of course I have to go. Yeah. But that's not film going. That's mm-hmm. not even film criticism, really. I mean, it, actually, it is film criticism because <laughs> you got to go see the, the garbage in order to, to, to say what you But it wasn't it. as bad, though, back then, though. But now it's just like everything is so lazy. Like, um... We'll go back to like the 80s and the 90s. It was a B movie. We know that. It's, you know, blood sucking fiends, whatever. But you knew you were at least going to get some prosthetic uh, gore. They would try, because I saw the behind the scenes on Two Evil Eyes. Yeah. And uh, it was just a simple effect. Pyramid goes up in the air, comes down into a dude's chest. It took all day for them to do that. Three setups, because every time. Blood wouldn't fly right or something like that. But and it they was got like it. 30 seconds of film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you look at it, it's like, wow, that looks really cool. 
You well, know, whereas also... it was crappy CG, which I think is killing yeah. film altogether. <laughs> well, again, it's not the CG there's... that's killing film; it's the people that use the tool. Yeah, that's, that's true. true. Yeah, mm-hmm. because and CG think... can be done really well, and I'm not talking I'm saying about crappy Jurassic CG. Park. I don't care. And who's I don't doing even want to say the people CG. who use the tool. That's not fair to the digital effects artists. Right? I'm not talking about them. I think I'm talking it's about the producers. The, the producers yeah. and directors. <laughs> and the directors. directors have to take some responsibility. Yeah, definitely. But it's the time allotted for it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, but do you think that sense of obligation? Is sort of rendering film criticism moot? It's, it's like, oh yeah, you know, so and so thinks this movie's terrible. We're all going to go see it anyway. If we're going to talk in general, in general audience terms, uh, it feels that way. I, I, I don't want to say it is, but I don't know but... if if a film critic has ever held that much power. I mean, I don't think if I you... think Siskel and Ebert did. Yeah, I think they they did for a while. They were the they first ones that were kind of really yeah. televising. Because I mean, one, the... I know a lot of people who went to films or didn't go to films on the thumb up or thumb down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and our generation, we didn't necessarily. I mean, genre films hadn't been cemented as being like profitable money makers or giving any type of respect or whatnot. So. You know, those were the guys. And if you look at it now, I'm sure your parents have their favorite critic and, or they go to, you know, USA Today or something like that. And they look who's doing the movies and that's what they, they go by. Whereas if, you know, uh, Beth Accomando, oh, I don't like her because she got a bullet hole in her head on her <laughs> profile <laughs> film or something like that. Yeah, and she's she, a woman. Yeah, she's crazy. So, you know. Blah, 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 blah. And speaking of criticism, uh, and that's a good point when you say she's a woman. Like, when I read the Soska sisters' uh, Mm. reviews, Mm. most people don't even review the movie. Yeah. They reviewed them. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's it's sad. I mean, that has nothing to do with the film. I've learned nothing about your criticism, but yet you'll have people just piling on. Oh, yeah. But positive or negative. Mm-hmm. Positive or, or negative, negative, they are reviewing them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, I remember someone mentioned that I had, even though you know I'm, fr- I'm we're friends with them, and everything. I have to admit this is true. They, as people, as personalities, they've crafted this mystique around themselves, are more popular than their film and more well known than their film. And I think there is some intention behind. Oh, it. definitely, they are it helps selling them as marketers. As oh, yeah. oh no, it's brilliant. It is it's very, brilliant. And it is yeah. very brilliant, but. but but I think, Dante, if I'm not mistaken, your point is that that's a – critique them in a different article. Precisely. Critique yes. the movie if you're going to critique the movie. Yes. Yeah. So, all right. Yes. So, two more things. All right. Favorite um, reviewer. Favorite movie reviewer. And why? Well, to be honest, I don't – You can re- say yourself. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have – Yeah, be like Ken Russell. Who's your favorite director? <laughs> Ken Russell. Well, I don't read a whole lot of criticism partially because – it's hard to write reviews sometimes if you're reading other people's criticism. But I used to read a lot of, in Variety, Derek Ellie, he reviewed a lot of Asian films. And I found that in the course of reading his reviews that we were like perfectly aligned in terms of our opinion. So I would love to read his reviews of films that hadn't come out yet from Asia. And I would run out to the <laughs> to the Asian film stores to try and track down these movies before they got to the U.S. so I could get a little head start on them. So I used to always enjoy reading him precisely for that reason. But other critics, I, I really don't read that often. Although I will say that it is sometimes really helpful to read somebody who's absolutely polar opposite to the way I feel because it fires me up so much. I'm like, oh, my God, they missed the whole point of the film. And then I go sit down and write, and it just flows out. <laughs> Rat mode. Yeah. Yes. Um, Miguel. Um, okay. <laughs> 
This is hard. This is hard to say. There's a lot, but I, I'm going to once again bring up the mysterious order of the skeletons <laughs> because my favorite uh, author of film reviews is actually Keith Allison, who wrote for who write wrote who writes for a site <laughs> called Teleport City because his reviews um, are. They're lengthy and they're insightful and they're also hilarious and anecdotal. He always has some kind of life story to go with them and they're a lot of fun to read. Uh, but they're not your like bullet point type review, which I really enjoy. But you're not going to get current film reviews from that. So yeah. uh, I'm going to go for another member of that particular writing group. There is a blog called TarsTarkus.net. And the writer of that is Tars Tarkas, who some of you may, if you're nerds, recognize as a character from Princess of Mars. <laughs> but um, he writes also reviews of all kinds of films, but he does also write reviews of current films, too. And they're also really more insightful, pick the film apart, look at different parts of it. And uh, he's kind of an eccentric guy, so his films are his film reviews are fun to read. And he's also insane. I think there's a new review <laughs> up. Like he has like two reviews up. I don't know how he does it, but uh, he's this you know guy living up in in San Francisco. But he has, must have a lot of time on his hands. Wow. But, uh, those are those are my two to plug. Awesome. Um, and I genuinely like them. I'm being sincere. Dante. Yeah. I will say you guys. Nah. No, for real. I, I like uh, your reviews because, one, you are fans, but, you know. Uh, I slipped him a few dollars. <laughs> and a couple of rubies. No, you look <laughs> But uh, I, I like, you know, the fact that, one, I mean, besides Beth being, you know, paid for, for being a critic, that you guys do it out of love of film. And I think that's when you, you really get the most sincerest reviews. When there's no, you know, I don't have to worry about being fired. I don't have to worry about, you know, pissing mm, off, yeah. you know, sponsors and all that type of stuff. This is how I feel about a film that I actually saw. Well, the so. beginning of Web 2.0, that was the beautiful thing about online criti critics popping they were, up. They were passionate is about it. They were passionate and real. Yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. But that, you know, and that's, I think that's where I, uh, to my detriment, I, I get my curmudgeon <laughs> reputation from, is I tend to be passionate in the negative and, and not so much in the positive, which is, which is not Well, you just remember film how it was. You but know? I will when, say, when I, will take, I will take a bad film over a mediocre film any day. Yes. I will say that is true. Yeah. I will take a bad film over a mediocre film any day of the week. We've talked about this yeah. before on other podcasts and, and actually on KPBS. But uh, uh, I, I will say this, David. My favorite review you've written that's positive is the Rise of the Planet of the Apes review. That was very well. You know, because that I, that is one of those films that completely. That is one of those movies that I went in with a big chip on my shoulder. Yeah. And I was like, CGI, this is going to be lame. Who do they think they are? And I was blown away. Yeah. And I love being proved wrong. People. Me too. That, I, yes. You were pissed. I, I, Wahlberg wasn't in it. I know. I know. <laughs> but I mean, but it, that's something people don't understand about me is I really love being proved wrong. And if and I, and I know I, I have on occasion gone into a film with a chip on my shoulder. Most of the time. I'm rooting for the movie. I want to go. I want to be entertained. I don't want to go in there to have a bad time. I want to have a good time. Well, I think that's the money. opposite, though, of of high on hate, though. Uh, yeah. yeah, but well, the high on hate is is when you do hate when it, you are when disappointed. You really hate. Yeah, that's true. So, but I will. Okay, so I will go my, which will come as a surprise to no one. Um, my favorite reviewer is Duncan Shepard. And like most people, <laughs> I hated him when I first read him. When I first read him, I couldn't stand him. And yeah, his writing does come across as very pompous. But I realized that one of the reasons I hated him is I couldn't understand half the stuff he was saying. So he forced me to improve my vocabulary, to really improve my writing. And even though 
like you talked about, he was a little dishonest in the sense that he was very much a cheerleader for Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood could do almost no wrong. Or the Coens, I think. Or the Coens. But everybody's like that with the Coens. I have yet to read a reviewer who wasn't a cheerleader for the Coens. Let's face it, there are almost those kind of reviewers. But it it was the fact that he put so much care in his writing, even though it was totally condescending, he was condescending to his audience because he knew his audience wouldn't understand that he was being condescending. <laughs> and I sort of a person like that get a job. And I sort of, because he still knew film. He had a really solid foundation in film history. He could mm-hmm. he could take a film, you know, he could take Jack Ryan and connect it to some obscure Scandinavian film from 1922 and I'd be like well, what are you talking about the guy knew his stuff and how and does that wrote, help the general audience and he audience wrote though? exceptionally well he wrote, that was my thing I really appreciated his writing he put care into his writing which I have is to admit, really missing from I, a lot of film blogs it's missing from 99% yeah. of it yeah a lot of a lot of the writing out there is is like third grade yeah. level which I, is actually why I like Keith Allison too if you ever want to check out yeah. Teleport City he's an exceptional writer as well but uh, but yeah I do miss that kind of I love good writing. Well, yeah. no, well now, how often does he put up like you know reviews? Do you well, think he's somebody... retired now. Yeah, I think he's, he's talking about Keith Allison. Oh, Keith 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 Keith. Keith. Yeah. no, no, oh, oh Keith. Yeah. Uh, he does one maybe once a week. Once a week, okay. Yeah. That's, mean... a, that's a pretty good, yeah, output. That's a lot more than I haven't written ever reviews since. Because you, you, do, do you think studio. people can keep um, a certain level of of writing if it's like you know you got to do three a week. It depends. Is it their job? How much of it? What do they have a day job, and how much time does that take? Like my well, day well, you job. You guys were saying that ninety nine percent of you know. Um, we talked about my my podcast not having come out for two and a half yeah. months. My day job went from about forty five hours a week to like seventy hours a week. Mm-hmm. So it's been really difficult to keep up. I with think that. that's the thing. People who are really passionate about film mm-hmm. can't get paid for it, and they do it in their off time. Yeah, and and that's something that Ebert, who is you know, arguably the most respected critic uh, of the last 20 years really appreciated about the rise of the internet is that he was talking to new filmmakers that really love, or not filmmakers, but film critics who actually loved film. Yeah. You know, they might disagree. They might disagree and they might just rip a movie to part, but that's because they absolutely love film that they do that. It's hard to remember as a critic and as a reader of film critics that audiences, especially if they're going in to see a film with sincerity in mind, they bring their own baggage and their own experiences to that film, so it's it it's. I try to keep in mind where opinions come from, how opinions are shaped, and that's why when I read a, a critic bashing a film that I loved or vice versa, I try not to fly off the handle and think <laughs> that I want to punch them in the face or write that I want to punch them in the face. But uh, ultimately, it is just opinion writing. Yeah. So, well, it's not a science. I mean, that's the it's thing. I mean, science. this is the argument I have with people all the time when I write a review and they don't agree with it. Yeah, but it's... you didn't like Sucker Punch. I know. <laughs> and I... therefore, your your opinions are completely invalid. And if I could be locked in a barn when the barn is flames torched with a flamethrower, they would be more than happy. But I mean. That's it. It's an opinion. And it's like, why do some people not like pineapple on pizza? You can't explain it. It's just, it is. It's but, cyberbullying. But it people, is. It is. Yeah. It's a form of that. You don't like what I like? F you. Yeah. I'm going to hunt you down. But I mean, I hope that when I write a review, I hope that I get across a couple of things. One, I hope I convey enough objective information so that somebody can read the review and think, well, she doesn't like romantic comedies, but what she just described sounds like exactly the kind of movie I want to go see. Mm, so yeah. there's enough just 
objective information about what the film is and how it's portrayed that you can get a sense of it on your own. And then two, to kind of convey what I thought the film wanted to do, whether or not it achieved it, and whether or not that was worth doing in the first place. So that's kind of the critical aspect of it. And that in discussing that, people can listen to what I have to say and figure out if my line of reasoning has any value, if the things I'm talking about make any sense, if the context I'm putting the film into enlightens them in any way, makes them more interested in seeing it. So I I hope I put enough information in there so that you can piece it apart and say, okay, well, that's, you know, she's completely off the handle here, or yeah, that's right on, or that's something I never thought of, and it's interesting to take a look at the film in that light. Do you think people even get that far? I mean, I think a lot of people, as soon as they they get the feeling that you did not like what they love, then you're... Oh, yeah. If it's a negative review, they probably get to the first negative comment and then start typing their comments back about... Oh, yeah. That happens more often than not. But there's always going to be people no matter how what percentage of the population they are, who are going to approach a review, whether or not they agree with it, in a thoughtful way. Yeah. And I don't think that we sitting here are the only people on the planet who do that. I, I, <laughs> it was not, it was very rare that I agreed with Duncan Shepard. Right. I just, I, I, I appreciated what he had mm-hmm. to say. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, I never thought of it that way. I still don't agree with you. Right. But I think about it, I think about things a different way now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like Duncan Shepard when he'd like something. It's like, oh, I love this film. It's like it's playing in like one theater nationwide. (laughs) But it was almost like a drink of water. But he loved the first Star Trek movie. Yeah. Star Trek the motion picture. Star Trek the motion picture. And he loved Somewhere in Time. I mean, there was just some oddball ones. He loved Bewitched. That's the one that really threw me. That's like David, man. It is like David. (laughs) Just like David. But but you know what? He loved Bewitched. Iron Man 2 was like, huh? But here's the thing about him and 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 going back to Armand White. It's just like, oh, Armand White's the one person in the world who hated the Avengers. Why? Let me go find out. Right. Why did he do it? And I read his review of the Avengers, and I was like, you know what, dude, makes some good points. Yeah. He really does. But but if people you don't want to hear that. People... Good points. Yeah. yeah. So now have now Dante have what what one movie would you say has put you most on the outside of popular opinion? <laughs> Sucker punch. <laughs> <laughs> That's impossible that you like that film. Classic. <laughs> As a matter of fact. Beth was talking about how she got death threats for Sucker Punch, and I was just like, hey, you know what? I'm going to pop that in. <laughs> Send her a death threat. Like, well, that no, I'll tell you a thank you note. There, there is. <laughs> Speaking of bad criticism, when you're really vehement against a film, there is some kind of masochistic tendency in some people to say, you know what? I need to watch this. That is true. Like, when you're like, dude, you got to see this movie about a deaf vampire. It's called Defula. I'm like, I yes. got to see Defula. No, but, but you that's, can't that's watch different. that without friends. But, even, but you know, that, that falls into the so bad it's good or camp yeah. factor. Right. Oh, yeah. That's a whole different thing. That's a whole different conversation. Okay, Miguel, what movie has, I, good or bad, has put you on most on the outside of public opinion? Oh, man, I didn't know you were going to ask this, so I have to really think about it. It doesn't have to be the one or anyone. You know what? I'm going to say this, and, and I wonder if I'm going to get any internet flack provided people listen to this. <laughs> there is an independent horror film that came out this year that people are just fawning and gushing over, and it's on like all these top ten lists that include a lot of other really worthy films, But and it's like number one. And it's this film called Jug Face. Which <laughs> I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah, when, when we saw it, we were all just kind of underwhelmed. Now, it wasn't bad. Yeah. By any stretch of the imagination. I couldn't get through 35 minutes. But yeah, it was like, 
but not worth not me. worth no it was uh, i rejected it for my film festival i didn't i didn't mm. think it was that good you know i didn't think it was that yes dante hates it yeah uh, dante hates hate a horror movie no it was just one of those, just like you were saying everybody's like oh my god you gotta see this movie and you pop it in and you're like it's just kind of underwhelming. Yeah. It's yeah. just kind of Which is worse than bad. It is uh, worse yeah. than mm-hmm. bad. It is worse than bad. I would rather see Plan 9 from Outer Space, yeah. which is entertaining and fun. Because bad because it evokes... Because passion. There's passion yeah. behind it. There didn't yeah. seem to be much passion behind Jug. Bad evokes an emotional response. Right. Mediocrity it evokes apathy. Yeah, when yeah. we were watching Jug Face, and I... I Desperate, this was at a point where I desperately wanted more features for the film festival. I was like, man, I've heard good things about this. I really want to like it. And even with like every fiber of my being wanting to get a feature, mm-hmm. by the end of it, I was like, I can't even remember what I just saw. Killer Shrews, yeah. Baby. Well, we already had Killer Shrews <laughs> at that point. Killer Shrews was signed on. You had to but, take Jugface out and put Pumpkinhead in. <laughs> I would have liked Pumpkinhead, but I, you know what I did do? I did take Jugface out and put the Manitou in. <laughs> nice. Manitou, awesome. Okay, Beth, what was your stage, your number one movie that oh, put you on man. the outside? I, I can't remember from all my reviews, but a, a fairly recent one. There's two films I'll mention. Um, one fairly recent one was I put Crank 2 on my 10 best list. <laughs> because I really admire... Because that movie is awesome? Because I really admire a film that I aims like for two. something and achieves it. Yes. I don't care if they aim high or low, mm-hmm. but to aim for something and get exactly what you wanted, and to me, Crank 2 was the closest thing we've gotten to a video game in a movie mm-hmm. than anything Ever. else. Yeah. And it, it created its own universe and stayed completely within... The realm of credibility within that universe. And I just thought it was a blast. And I put it on my 10 best list. Can I say there's also something to be said for aiming super high and failing so astoundingly that it also is surprisingly entertaining to see. One from the heart? (laughs) What movie did you have in mind? Oh, I was thinking maybe The Room. Uh, (laughs) You know what? It's funny because that popped up as, you know, like six screenwriting tips from Tommy Wiseau. And a friend of mine posted it on Facebook and he's like, really seriously? And I went, you know what? Whatever you may say, the guy wrote and directed a movie, it got distribution, and tons of people go to see it. Constantly. Repeatedly. Now, granted, they might be going to see it because it's bad, because but there's a, a draw there. Yeah. But there's a draw there. Yeah. But there's a certain genius to bad yes. filmmaking. You can't, there's bad yeah. that's unwatchable. You can't try to make a movie that bad. But yeah. the, gr- yeah. the room goes beyond just bad filmmaking. It is it is a, an utter failure. Yeah. But it's uh, you've seen failure. movies that actually try to be bad and yeah. they don't know how to do it. It's like, like Shetty. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, no, uh. I disagree. But, but, well, I think Machete Kills tried to be bad and nailed it. But I don't think Machete did. But again, but, but see, Tom, that's the problem with these the guys. Room, they he tried to make a good movie. The Grindhouse uh, uh, movement wasn't about making bad movies; it was just people making low-budget movies with a lot of heart. Yeah, and, right. And, and, I will know, agree with that. That's a good point. But and then I just think Robert Rodriguez you. does have a lot of heart, and I mean, yeah. I think he's satirizing he's, it though. He's he set himself up outside of Hollywood in Austin, Texas, making whatever damn film he wants. And I like that. I he mean, did I'm... dedicate his body to science to fund his first film. He was the reason why I make movies. I saw uh, El Mariachi, and yeah. I was just like, and then I read his book. I go, I got to do this. Right. Yeah. I got to do this. So I love that. But it seems like, you know, like a lot of great directors that you know, we've seen in the past, when they start getting budgets, 
How did we get on this? Yeah, but he doesn't have money. budget. I know. He I want to try to. Well, actually, Machete Kills cost something like twenty million. I'm like, there's no way. But that's in not. Hell. Even, that's not even a budget anymore. And that was yeah. All, and that was all to the star salaries. You know, uh, like, that is did, what it goes yeah. to. And that's yeah. why I look. It's I, star salaries and catering. And catering. <laughs> I did want to mention one other film, which is not necessarily outside the what the. Well, let me just put The Shining. I did not think mm. it was a horror film. I thought it was a comedy. My friend and I went. Wow. And seriously, we were laughing so hard during that movie because we felt like Kubrick was making fun of Stephen King and Stephen King fans. Stephen King apparently and, thought so too. And yeah. I I mean, I I thought it was great on that level. I mean, I thought Jack Nicholson was totally over the top, not scary at all, but <laughs> hilarious. And so my friend and I, they, they practically tried to eject us from the theater. It was at the Cinema 21. I remember going and, and people wanted us to be removed from the theater because we were laughing. But... I appreciated it for that, and I, I still liked it, but I, I really can't take it as a serious horror film. Okay, here's another that tangent in the hell film criticism. People laugh. Is it rude to laugh in appreciation at a serious film? Meaning, there's it's it's a serious film, but there's something about what you're watching that strikes you as almost like so brilliant <laughs> that you just can't help but laugh <laughs> because yep. it's just so like, of course, that's just brilliant. Like, uh, what was it, Wings of Desire, the Vim Vendor's Wings of Desire film? I, I felt that feeling. You, you, you get an appreciation to a, to the point of elation. Yes. Giddiness. Yeah, exactly. Giddiness. Like, you're so giddy, you know. yeah. I think that um, on, on a lot of levels, it probably isn't rude because of that. I think people take it as rudeness, particularly yeah. in a theater setting. Because they think you're mocking it. Well, either they think you're mocking it or... or you're insane. <laughs> How much laughter, well, David, are you laughing like here's every the thing. 10 minutes or is it just once? If, 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 no, I mean, well, I'm, I think if you're doing it all the time, then if that's feelings, yeah. If feelings and emotions in a person of, uh, of a really serious quality are elicited from a film and they hear laughter... It it's like nails on a chalkboard. Mm. Like if you're like driven to tears from a, a film, and some person, the row behind you, is like giggling like crazy, it it's not that they're being rude, but it has an effect on you mm. that hurts. And I think that is, it, it, you know, there's no real solution to that. But okay, well, I'm gonna go. We went 20 minutes over what I anticipated because there's more to this topic than I even imagined. That we, well, that also we, we went way off the off topic. Tons of, of tangents. Yeah. That was my fault. Um, yeah, it was moderator. Yeah, the one you movie can call that this tangent city. Tan, that, oh, that's what we'll be. We'll be the tangent group. Um, are we? Are one, we going to? Oh yeah, no. We're, come, we're, we're, we're doing this more. Sorry, Keith. This is just too much fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, the movie that constantly puts me on the outside of everyone because I have not met a single soul who agrees with me. Not one. Not a film critic. Not a film goer. Not a serious movie buff. And not a casual movie goer is Terminator Two. I just can't get through it. I, 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 and, and no, and I've not met one person who agrees with me, and I don't think there's anybody. In this you room that would just agree. defecated on the childhood <laughs> of so many people, Dave. I will. At least I didn't rape their childhood. <laughs> I, now I we're gonna the, get all kinds of the R word. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, uh, I'm gonna throw you this bone that I can't sit through it anymore. Really? Yeah, and to me, and I will yeah. say why. I'm not just going to put it out there without saying why. To me, it is, uh, and I even said this to somebody on, on, on Facebook today, I think it's a soulless remake. I think it's mm. literally the same film as The Terminator with less heart and with more special effects to the point where the special effects became the film. Well, that's just it. Yeah. I think I think people were astounded by the special effects at yeah. the time and it became a milestone in filmmaking. But as a film, it just feels really ch- 
storytelling wise, it feels really cheap. You've got Arnie saying, hasta la vista, baby. And, you know, I love that kind of thing in Commando. But when people talk about Terminator 2 like it's Lawrence of Arabia, then it really puts a bad taste I don't think I don't think it takes itself as – I think it simultaneously doesn't take itself as seriously and tries to take itself more seriously than the Terminator. And right. the two just don't it's work. A commercial, Terminator's a much far It's a commercial film. film. Absolutely. Yeah. You're the first person to say that, Miguel, because everybody else says Terminator By 2 is better. And Terminator there's no superior. way Terminator 2 By is better. Far <laughs> Terminator oh, superior. yeah. But, I mean, originally, Terminator superior. 2 was supposed to have Arnold as both the good and the bad Terminator, right. which yeah. would have made it far more interesting. Yeah. That is true. But he refused to do that because... Probably because of his political well, that, ambitions. It, uh, yeah, that he was didn't the point want where to he had appear. A huge ego. Yeah, yeah, and he didn't want to appear as the villain again. Yeah, yeah. the only time that, that that ego helped us is that uh, he said no to Commando 2 and it turned into <laughs> Die Hard. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, thank God for that. <laughs> thank, you, thank you, Arnold. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I mean, I liked, I enjoyed Terminator 2, but I um, always liked the, the first one because it was a, a dire, gritty yeah. film. And it was lean. And mean, and virtually yeah. humorless, really. Yeah. Virtually humorless. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that really helps. The, the second tight. one was definitely a commercial film. I I understood that when I first saw it, but you know, it was about the special effects. You know, and being a person who really liked films, and you know, you're seeing a progression and effects. It's just like wow. I loved it incredible. as a kid when I saw it. Yeah, in the theater. I hated the fact that Arnold was a good, you know, yeah. a good guy. I was like, you know, just a big. Android teddy bear. But I don't think Cameron made a movie under two hours after Terminator. <laughs> yeah, I know. Did I just change right. everybody's minds? I don't think anybody. No, I, was so, I was so happy being the outsider. Sorry. No, I, I, I enjoyed it, but it was actually on Dante not too long ago. It. I liked it. Yeah. You know, it was fun. Yeah, you it, know? Come, it comes on TV and I'll be I like, can't get hmm, Terminator 2. Uh, I wish it was Predator. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There you go. I, that, that, that wraps it <laughs> up. Terminator note. 2, I wish it was Predator. Thank or Predator 2. Predator 2. You know, I, like the, Predator. I like Predator 2. Predator 2 is the most uh, underrated action film. It really is. Damn right. most <laughs> underrated action sequel, too, also. Yeah. It is back. Right. We can literally go on forever. All right. I'm going to wrap this up. When are we doing um, this again? Uh, you know what? As soon as possible. Are we really calling Next this? Next year? No, that was probably more realistic than you think. Are we really calling this Tangent City? No, we could. We'll come up with the name. We'll think about I it. I kind of like Tangent. that name. Tangent City? Although right. I do feel like we're ripping off Keith a little bit. I don't want to go. But, but if we uh, plug him we'll... every week yeah. or right. every hopefully... month or every year. I just, I don't like interrupting anybody, even though I do it all the time. I don't like interrupting anybody. So when we get well, off on a tangent, funny. it feels like it's a point to it. Either I'll that or you can bring your microphone to the <laughs> theater. So at the end of the the movie, we just when we stand outside for two hours, Brandon. And raving about a film. Yeah. We'll have to record on street corners, though. So, Beth, fun. where can people read your stuff? They can read my stuff at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. And Miguel? Uh, well, <laughs> a number of places. But I will say that there is a blog, a San Diego music blog called Owl and Bear. Uh, <laughs> they do, actually, they've covered a lot of your, or a couple of your music videos that you've directed. I was like, yeah, Dante directed that. But they have a lot of readers. Really? They have a big, yeah. <laughs> they have a big readership in San Diego and they decided they wanted a film section and uh, they approached me to do some some film reviews on that. That's actually how I got to see The Great Beauty. Uh, with, and so I'll have that review coming out like tomorrow on owlandbear.com. Uh, as well as uh, Monster Island Resort has a couple of uh, episodes in the works. And that's monsterislandresort.org. .org, .org, yes. And the best place to contact me is via Twitter, mm. at Monster Resort, because I hate Facebook, but I do like Twitter. Twitter. Twitter's for the youngins. 
No, but Twitter's <laughs> awesome. Because Miguel I, thinks he's a teenager because he doesn't like Facebook anymore. Well, everybody I talk to on Twitter is significantly older than I, I am. I will say that. But I do like uh, um, participating in live tweets with older films, which I do with a group of people. One is called the TCM Party, where we watch Turner Classic Movies films and talk about them at the same time. People all over the world tweeting with hashtag TCM Party. And every Thursday, there's also the Drive-In Mob, which watches really bizarre Mondo, crazy exploitation, old sci-fi, you name it type films, and live tweets it together with hashtag drive in mob. And both of those things are probably the most fun I have on the internet ever. So I highly recommend it. And while we're off on another tangent running way over, Beth, why don't you give a shout out to Shot by Shot? Well, actually, Miguel and I run a couple of film series. Shot by Shot is at the Whistle Stop, and it's the second Thursday of the month. And we run a wide variety of films from things like Dr. Strangelove to Shaun of the Dead to, I don't know, what's the The strangest? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And then also, which... uh, is probably even more important to plug is the Digital Gym Cinema. Mm -hmm. And we run a program called the Film Geeks Present, and we run late-night genre films there on Saturday nights at... Fridays and Saturdays at 10 Uh, mm o'clock. And it's a cozy 49-seat micro-cinema, and we want to see this place survive because we want to be able to bring films that would not play the mainstream theaters here to San Diego. It is impossible to say this without sounding like an asshole, and I'm sorry, I know we're out of time. (laughs) But... The only times that I have been excited about going to see a film in the theater in the last year have been during the Film Geeks when we brought films like the Maniac remake, Barbarian Sound Studio, American Mary, American Mary uh, most yeah, recently the Birth of the Living Dead documentary, Very which good. I really loved. We're going to be showing uh, The Devils, which is a revival. Ken Russell's thing. The Devils, yeah. yeah, coming on the 25th. And these are the only times that I've, and with the newer films that I felt really excited. And I have been getting messages from people saying, you know, I'm going through all these top 10 of the year lists and half of them are all film, ge- have been Film Geeks films. And I was like, yeah, that's because we're looking for good films. You know? So I'm real, I'm, I am really proud of the Film Geeks. And, and it is a really good venue. It's a nice yeah. theater. It's a nice screen. It's very comfortable. And it, what, it seats less than 50. So it is yeah. very cozy. So you kind of get to know your neighbor and you get to know, and these are, again, these are people who are passionate about films. These are not not just your casual film goers, but casual film goers are welcome as well. I mean, I'd like to see that theater get a consistent audience so that the programming can be even more daring than it is. And we can bring even more films and to do things like revivals and old films and you know, just stuff that really deserves to be on a big screen. Stuff that you'd have to go to LA for. What's that? Fist of Jesus. Fist of Jesus. Oh, God. <laughs> All right, D. where can people uh, check you out? You can go to my uh, website, infernoproductionswithaz.com, or you, know, you can check out a new movie that's coming out, Penance. Starting... Oh, there you <laughs> go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which will actually be premiering I at... I tried to keep it in, but it was like a volcano. <laughs> <laughs> Which will be uh, premiering at the uh, Digital Gym in March. Looking forward to that. And you can look that up at penancethemovie.com. And uh, that's pretty much it. Actually, uh, and then we have The American Dream coming out this summer. Then we're going to be moving on to The Boogeyman. So I'm going to have three films coming out this year. Awesome. And you can check out uh, my archive work, because I haven't written anything in about 10 months, at rainstorm.com. It's R-A-I-N-E-S-T-O-R-M.com. He's too busy writing dark poetry. (laughs) 
I, uh, no, ten, month, <laughs> ten months is a good gestation. Maybe I'm period. just touchy. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting. You know what? This is what this is why I haven't done it in a while. Is I'm literally waiting for a good movie to get released that I can fawn over. Literally, of, shush. Literally, <laughs> the literal definition of the word literally, <laughs> so that I can fawn over a movie instead of say how much I hate the movie. Got to so see that's, that's Beyond Outrage. Beyond Outrage. Just read right. Lawrence of Arabia. Again. I know. All right. I, I liked it better than the original. All right. Well, the first one. that wraps us up. Thank you. Guys. Thanks for joining us. Hope we can do it again, and uh, I'll see you all next, next Wednesday. I'm see good. You next Wednesday. Next Wednesday.